We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Ron Allen. Ron is the man who built the sub that got James Cameron to the bottom of the ocean. He's also a pioneering cave diver with many records to his name. Ron will share his unique journey from ABC radio engineer to adventurer, explorer and inventor. So I'm thrilled to be talking to Ron Allen on this episode of Talking Australia. Well, welcome to the second part of a two-part interview with Ron Allen, one of Australia's, I, I would say, unsung pioneers of ocean exploration, a man whose ability to turn around any situation just really by his technical know-how and his ability to fix stuff has landed him in some of uh, some of the greatest adventures um, of the last 30 to 40 years. In part one, we explored the cave diving um, history of Ron Allen through uh, his youth and um, into 90, the mid-1980s when he was involved in the Panikin Plains uh, cave uh, rescue mission. As a result of his cave diving days and his friendship with Andrew White, the filmmaker, um, Andrew then uh, and Ron sort of set off on another path, uh, really into the world of epic filmmaking. And so we're going to talk a little bit like about that today with Ron. So welcome again, Ron. <laughs> Great to have you back. Um, we finished last time talking about the um, Panic in Plains uh, cave rescue, which uh, became a successful documentary. Um, and, and you went from there, then making a, being able to capture film and footage of adventures, it really was in its infancy in those times. And people weren't really... Uh, turning these kind of adventures into film. But I think um, sort of the advent of sponsorship of adventure um, and also, you know, in the 80s, then television started to transform and, and, and there were more places to see things and you could get the video and watch the videotape. And uh, suddenly this sort of whole world kind of expanded and, and you found a, a role for yourself with all your technical background and your broadcasting and your training with the ABC. Tell us a little bit about where you went after that Panic in Planes, where the f how the film career started. Look, after Panic and Planes, uh, Andrew decided that, um, yeah, he'd already produced his first film, but uh, he thought, well, it can't be that hard to, um, um, you yeah, earn a living from documentary filmmaking. So he, uh, he, he did a, a story treatment for four films. I think they were all Australia-based, actually, and also uh, to Florida was one of them. Now, I wasn't able to join him on all those expeditions, but it certainly did uh, whet my appetite 
to travel to uh, North Queensland to do uh, Predators of the North. Or there's another one, um, Great Whites, probably in uh, South Australia. Um, I didn't get to go to Florida with him. But, yeah, I, I did start a, uh, a new career path for me. Um, but I was still working at the ABC, but uh, that came to an end in the early 90s. Um, I had left South Australia. I'd come back to uh, Sydney and I completed work at the ABC Ultimo Studios. Um, but I didn't realise at the time that I had actually worked myself out of a job and I was then to be made uh, redundant because of the, uh, the new technology, um, the central location of all the ABC studios um, you know, in one location. So, yeah, I was no longer needed, and, and that's when I decided to follow Andrew. And what kind of role did you <laughs> have with, with the filmmaking? What, 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 what was your skill set and what, 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 what actually did you do on those shoots? Yeah, look, when you're, um, you're on a, a budget documentary team, you, know, you can't just do one role. And you know, I just couldn't just be a cave diver or a diver or... Yeah, um, someone just uh, being there. So, yeah, I did have to perform a role. Um, yeah, I was, a, as you mentioned, a sound engineer. So I, I became sound recordist. You don't need sound recording when you're underwater, so I managed to do uh, a lot of the diving. Um, I also uh, were able to pick up a camera and do a lot of the underwater photography. The other thing that I soon learnt is that when you're on the road with a, a lot of sensitive film equipment that you have breakdowns and I certainly would have used those technical skills to keep uh, cameras operational. So yeah, I, I kept a, a, a lot of things rolling. You're um, a troubleshooter. Being able to mm. you know, fix and repair gear mm. on the way and it didn't actually end there. Um, you know, Andrew also wanted me, you know, had his own ideas about you know, what we needed to do um, certain um, you know, critter cams, you know, putting a camera on a critter, a shark or a, mm. um, this you know, was, a turtle. This was very <laughs> early. I mean, really, so, that we, we, we used to sort of seeing those kind of amazing sort of intimate uh, recordings of wildlife nowadays, but, I mean, it really would have been quite unusual back then. And you were, I guess when you said the... Predators of the North, you're talking about crocodiles there. <laughs> you actually went after all the scary things, so you kind of knew what the, the subject matter was going to be that was really going to capture people's imagination, the, the scary stuff. So it's yeah. that, that I guess that comes around to how you ended up swimming with a shark. Yeah, look, one of Andrew's ambitions was to you know, do a story with great whites. And the first one, we had a... I think we had the Perspex cage. So he wanted to experience what it'd be like yeah, without anything in front of you except for a sheet of perspex, but it wasn't very manoeuvrable and was big, heavy, clunky. Um, but uh, on this occasion, yeah, he said, yeah, can we build a mobile shark cage? We had the Aquazep scooters from the earlier cave expedition. Uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up building a mobile shark cage with mm. two big Aquazep scooters, a fixed buoyancy system so that the diver could control the buoyancy uh, of the cage. 
Yeah, it was just like an ambition um, of Andrew's. Yeah, and then um, Hollywood came knocking for for Andrew, and um, he ended up going over to America to work. And you um, came knocking for you eventually. Tell us how you ended up working with James Cameron. I always say, you know, take opportunities, you mm. know, um, as they as they occur. And if one closes, you know, another one's going to open. And what had happened is that we, or Andrew had contracted to work on a large vessel called the Quest. Uh, he was advised, you know, several years into this that the, the, the boat, the Quest, was going to be sold and that Andrew would have to, um, you know, it would not be available and the funding would not be available for any future documentaries. Um, so Andrew, with that news, I think we did the one last expedition to Guadalupe and that was going to be it and you know he was quite dejected he went back to his farm he was standing out in the paddock and he gets a phone call and you know he honestly thought one of his mates was pulling his leg and uh, the person on the other end you know well, I'm James Cameron <laughs> and Andrew did not believe uh, for one moment that it was and it turned out to be <laughs> so. So all of a sudden, you know, Andrew's, um, you know, into his next phase of his, um, you know, career. And then how did that? So when did when did you get the call? For okay. Um, and for what reason? Yeah, Jim had in mind to do another, you know, Jacques Cousteau uh, Ventures of the Sea. Uh, he'd invested in a ship. Um, you know, Andrew quickly. Um, told him how much a ship would cost, um, you know, and I, I think Andrew was really, um, yeah, like an ad, an advisor to, to James Cameron, you know, from pretty much day one. And, um, uh, you know, Jim sort of went cold turkey on the idea of um, this adventure series. Um, but Jim's always loved, you know, the... Uh, the deep diving, the diving with the Russian Mir submersibles, uh, diving with Titanic. Um, and Jim was also in development of his, um, of a 3D camera for Avatar. And he wanted to trial this camera, not in a film studio or a swimming pool or a Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, he wanted to put it back on a Russian Mir submersible and take it back to Titanic. So, yeah, that's when Andrew called me is, you know, how are we going to get Jim's camera onto a Russian Mir submersible and take it down on Titanic? So this, um, is, so this is after he'd made the Titanic, the movie, yeah. for which he had actually filmed, he'd taken these Mir, these Russian submersibles, yeah. deep water, like small subs. He'd, he'd already done all of that, so he'd been down to the Titanic and, and filmed the wreck on the bottom, and then he'd made the movie as well, which also has those sequences yeah. in it of the, 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 almost like the true life sequences of the, the, the crew going down and filming it. Uh, so it's after all of that that you got involved. Yeah, well, Jim had made the film, but... Um... I think that was in the mid '90s, when um, it was released '97 or thereabouts. Mm. Um, but he'd used 
a 35mm camera with a 6 minute load and when he built the cameras for Avatar they were electronic cameras and he was going to record every moment of a dive um, on tape inside the Russian Mir sub so he had to interface the cameras on the outside um, on a pan and tilt head um, that could be remotely controlled uh, to the recording equipment inside. So he did special deals with Sony for the cameras. Um, his brother Mike had built um, you know, the underwater housing for his rig. It was two cameras side by side. Um, yeah, he set the interocular distance, the distance between the two lenses. Had to be the same as the distance between your eyes. Um, he wanted to converge the cameras, which is one of his patented um, techniques. Um, but yeah, he yeah he wasn't going to um, you know settle with just mediocre testing. Yeah, he wanted it on a Russian near sub. Um, yeah, he wanted to be able to take it to six thousand meters. Um, he wanted to yeah film and have a Titanic and in three D. In 3D. That's what we're talking yeah. about, isn't it? That's yeah. what this special camera yeah. equipment so, was. Yeah, his movie was 2D film cameras. Yeah. Um, ever since we did that expedition back out to Titanic, um, he filmed uh, each dive seven or eight hours of footage, you know, whereas previously it was one six-minute load per dive. Nice. Yeah, so he got this incredible, incredible amount of footage. Uh, I was then responsible for... The second mere submersible with all the all of his HMI lights. This is so he could flood the scene with light Basically, for, yeah. for the filming of the 3D. And this was going to be the 3D film of the Titan, the wreck of the Titanic. Yeah, so you'd so be basically doing a kind of fly through of the of the wreck and going up the main staircase and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so some of the shots from that were just absolutely you know, stunning. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, Jim it, and then um, yeah, decided he had enough uh, footage for, um, well, it was planned. It was um, uh, Ghosts of the Abyss, was the, um, the 3D, first mm. 3D um, documentary. And that was enough for IMAX. And it was the first 3D uh, film shot on digital cameras that was shown at an IMAX theatre. Mm. Mm. So it was... Groundbreaking yeah, he, stuff. He, he proved that the cameras were high quality, mm. uh, 3D, capable of 3D. Um, most of the 3D at the time at IMAX theatres, uh, you could only watch it for about 20 minutes because you get um, eye strain or brain strain mm. trying to converge the images. Um, but with Jim's uh, technique of converging cameras, um, you know, this all became a lot easier to the viewer and um, you know, eventually decided that Avatar was a full-length feature, yeah, 3D, 100%, and it was, yeah, because of, um, you yeah, know, the developments, um, mm. yeah, through, through, through diving. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess um, your, what was your relationship like? Did you get to know him quite well on, the, on that expedition? And uh, <laughs> I suppose my first encounter was, um, yeah, I think he could have... Um, dismissed me pretty much straight away. Um, yeah, he's very much a person who is very capable of doing things himself and he likes things done his way. I'm very much a person that would look at how someone else would do it and do it slightly differently. 
uh, but achieve uh, equal or better results. Mm. Um, so I don't know that he liked me from a word go, but it was at the end of that expedition, another of these end of expedition um, events, and that was um, uh, 9-11 happened. And it was quite eerie because we were sort of coming back. We had a lot of, we picked up a lot of Americans on the expedition um, that were lived on the East Coast and, yeah, they wanted to get home to their families and mm. the US had grounded all the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada had done the same. I said to Jim, look, yeah, the planes are grounded. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, we had a couple of malfunctions with some pieces of equipment uh, we were supposed to follow it up with a dive out to the Bismarck. And, you know, and I said, look, I'm not going anywhere. You know, there's no planes. I'm, I'm here. Would you like me to clean up this uh, equipment? You know, we had some battery, um, not fires, but battery burnouts on some of the underwater um, little um, ROVs that his brother had built for him. And, um, yeah, he just looked at me in disbelief, yeah, no one really volunteers, you know, unless you're told to do something, you don't do it, so, uh, but I think from that moment, you know, that's when I got um, a rapport with Jim at... Um, so, from, it's, a, it's quite a leap, really, from, from that to uh, Challenger Deep, <laughs> and, uh, and this very ambitious uh, expedition to the world's deepest point, um, and your role was obviously very different by the time uh, Jim was planning that one. So, mm. tell us how your role evolved to be the person that ended up designing uh, the submersible that would actually take him to, to the world's deepest point. Two thousand five, we did a program called um, Titanic Live, and. Jim had been asked to do a live telecast from Titanic um, and I needed a broadcast system and I was the one that was called in to design the broadcast system. We had to put a fibre optic cable on the Mia submersible. Um, we had to uh, have a, a rigid hull inflatable boat built with a special uh, fibre winch and a radio system to link it to the the main mothership uh, for this telecast to happen and it was really because of the success of that that yeah I had built pretty much built and designed or designed and built um, the telecast the broadcast system for uh, what we call TLO5 that um, yeah that's when we really started talking about um, you know what do we do next you know how do how can we build a a vehicle to go to the bottom, the deepest spots on you know, the world's oceans. Um, you know, how do we bring back the images? You know, how do we go about it? And um, yeah, so Jim started looking at companies in the US and had asked people to quote, um, you know, put up proposals, design things, and no one listened to what Jim wanted. And yeah, we eventually got talking and, um, you know, he said, well, you know, we could, if you could look at the feasibility of doing this. So I said about, um, you know, setting up our own high-pressure test vessel um, at home in Australia. Uh, I started testing components and thinking of different ways of um, uh, creating, you know, underwater lights that weren't in pressure vessels, um, motors that 
didn't need the electronics in pressure vessels to make it all lighter. And I end up spending one or two years um, saying to Jim that, yes, we can do this. And that's when he said, well, can you build a sphere? And I said, well, I've never built a sphere, but we'll, yeah, um, we'll give it a go. So uh, literally that's, um, yeah, I guess how it all started. And that was at the end of um, 2005 that... Um, yeah, started looking into diving to full ocean depth. I, I suppose early scientists, um, yeah, I even saw a paper very recently saying that full ocean depth is 6,000 metres. Um, yeah, because I, I, scientists believed that, you know, nothing would survive, or once believed that nothing would survive below 6,000 metres, and it's only a small percentage of the world's oceans, um, you know, the size of North America or the size of Australia, but it didn't really matter because nothing lived down there. Why go there? Why bother? Um, and even today, you know, some of the top universities um, only have uh, test equipment that will go down to 6,000 metres. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we had to sort of break that myth. Um, we had to look for equipment that was full ocean depth rated. If it wasn't available, then we would have to uh, create it and make it. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. And where did you do? I mean, I, I, I think because I, I, I interviewed you for a story a few years ago. I think you developed some of this in your own backyard, didn't you, in Sydney? Yeah, a lot of it. Um, our first pressure vessel was in our laundry. Mm. Um, I would quietly pump it up at the night time with a hydraulic jack. Um, yeah, we're talking twenty thousand pounds per square inch, um, which is yeah four times the normal hydraulic jack. Um, pressures um, but yeah I would religiously pump it up most nights you know change out the you know what I was testing during the day and yeah just quietly uh, went around you know that business of you know qualifying um, you know electronic components finding battery cells that would operate at uh, full ocean depth pressures um, yeah and uh, and you work just... hard to keep the project in Australia and to keep the components in Australia. Was, Tell us about that. It was, look, the project was destined to be done in the US. You know, that's Jim's, was Jim's ambition. Um, and I, I suppose the first um, thing that happened is that Jim wanted a titanium sphere. Um, if you look at the world price at titanium, it peaked when I was searching titanium. Nowadays, it's a quarter of a price. But mm. then it was the most expensive and a very long lead time to obtain it. So I had to tell Jim that the price of titanium, it would cost $2.5 million for the material. Um, it would be a two-and-a-half-year lead time by the time you place an order. Um, then we would have to forge it, weld it, machine it, etc., etc., 
Um, and that would have spelt the end of a uh, project because he wasn't going to fund that sort of money on the sphere. Um, but in the meantime, I had researched a, an Australian metallurgist um, out of uh, Victoria. I, flew, I hopped on a plane and met him the next day in Melbourne. And first words were, why titanium? Uh, he took me to a forge in Melbourne, um, some machine shops, and basically we concluded that we can get the steel out of Newcastle, uh, we can forge it in Albury, we can machine it in Melbourne, uh, we welded it in Adelaide, and we had to send it to the United States to have it pressure tested. And he ended up with a sphere for less than a million dollars. And we started work um, almost away. immediately, yeah. Uh, so the sphere, a little bit like the sphere in the Mir submersibles, is, is where the pilot sits. But um, that's uh, just a small component, really, of what was actually going to take Jim down to Challenger Deep. Tell us about how you developed the rest of the submersible and why it was so such a game-changer. Yeah, um, OK, the sphere was... Um uh, end up being steel. Um, it was still, we used some metals in that but that were stronger for weight than titanium. So, um, you know, titanium being, you know, fantastic material is not necessarily so. Um, it does have, um, it is better as far as corrosion. But um, look, there were other aspects of it. One, um, uh, well, the other thing was, um, but the sphere was still going to be two and a half tons negatively buoyant. We had to float it. Uh, sorry, it weighed two and a half tons. Uh, it displaced um, only about a ton of water, so it was still one and a half tons negatively buoyant. We had to float it, and we needed flotation material. The only problem there was that Jim wanted to use the flotation material structurally, and yeah, so I had asked or requested samples from various manufacturers. Uh, when I tested them, we found that it, uh, these foams could not be used structurally because if you subject them to hydrostatic pressure, they would bend, buckle under uh, crack or mm. buckle. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, again, it's one of these stories that if you tell Jim, well, you can't use it structurally, uh, and that was his idea, um, you know, I was trying to figure what could be an alternative. And that's when, you know, I decided that, uh, well, if you look at manufacturing foam differently to convention, then maybe uh, we can come up with a new type of material. And, yeah, that's what we did. And you basically invented that new material, is that right? You yeah. Pat you patented it. Yeah. Since I remember telling Jim that, um, you know, conventional foams out of the US... Um, yeah, it would distort, break and crack under pressure. Um, you know, the chances are you'll lose a part of your flotation, you're not coming up. Um, so he wouldn't have liked that. So, and, you know, on the next same breath, you know, you'd have to then go into a spiel that, um, look, I've got an idea, I think we can make it. Uh, and I'd already made a little piece that was uniform and that we had tested and that we knew it could uh, do the job. And, um, yeah, his next question was, well, is it new? And I said, yes, or I think so. Um, then he said, patent it, <laughs> which mm. we did. So mm. Great. And then the, the sub itself is, um, 
it, it, it doesn't resemble the, the, when we think of a submarine shape, shape, something that goes through the water in a sort of vertical way. Tell us about the, 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 the sort of horizontal way in which the sub sort of moves up and down the water column and, and why you came up with that innovation. Yeah, um, oh look, Jim really led the design, um, you know, his concept, you know, basic physics. What he wanted to do was to, you know, minimise the transit time. He wanted to get down there quick, get up quick, uh, so he could spend the maximum time on the seafloor, because um, that's where the research is, the science. Um, yeah, that's where he wanted to be. Um, so, you know, you, you build a skyrocket, you know, something that's you know uh, tall and vertical, so that you know it's more streamlined in in ascent and descent. Um, so it's sort but, of like a fat squat cigar shape type of yeah, but it's stood like vertically. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of other submersibles are more you know horizontally That's right. shaped. Yeah. And you know they they design that they have a propeller at the end and they can cruise around mm. and yeah, look for things on the sea floor. But, but when you're spending most of your time in ascent or descent, um, it comes a point where you may as well have a, uh, a rocket-shaped ship rather than a, um, yeah, something that is horizontal. Mm. You know, a vertical machine is going to go through that water column a lot quicker. And yeah, we did actually make it a little bit streamlined in the forward direction because Jim also wanted it to traverse around on the seafloor uh, at the bottom of the trenches. So it still needed to move around. So it still on, had on to a, move, a, yeah. A vertical and, plane. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, we found that the shape was quite, um, uh, yeah, uh, conducive, that it, it could actually uh, fly around, you know, standing vertically um, without too much uh, of a problem. And you tested it, and then the day came when you were uh, hovering, I suppose, or floating over the Marianas Trench. So, um, tell us a bit about Challenger Deep, where, how you get there, and, and and then and what happened when you got there, and how the whole expedition played out. Because uh, it was such a big expedition; it was one of the last really great uh, uh, expeditions where somebody's achieved a, a real sort of first. I mean. Jim wasn't the first person to go down mm. to Challenger Deep, of course, because uh, there had been a, an expedition there in the early 1960s, but he was the first person to stay down there and collect that sort of data. Yeah. Um, look, when we... Look, the sub was first tested in Garden Island in Sydney uh, on Australia Day 212. Ah. <laughs> OK, so it sort of got... Yeah, uh, it was built in Australia. Um, so I think that... Yeah, it was quite important. The second dive was um, Jarvis Bay, slightly deeper. Mm. Uh, but then we went up to New Guinea, and um, I think that's where the big dive started. You know, we, we had a 2,000-metre uh, ROV on the ship, you know, which... So the first dives were below 2,000 metres so that um, we had support. Um, so they, could they go down to 2,000 and then the mm. vessel would go on its own for the next... Oh, no, would no. The, stay with them? No, no, the vessel was totally... Deep Sea Challenge would dive alone, but um, it wasn't... Those first few dives were limited to 2,000 metres. Right. So, so we'd pick an area of seafloor where you couldn't go deeper so that if it got into trouble, it wouldn't come up, something failed... Um, then we had ROVs on board the ship that could help. Um, and Jim felt that quite important. Um, 
but then we quickly moved um, you know, to 4,000 metres, I think, and then it was 8,000 metres. Um, <clears throat> as soon as we did the successful dive at 8, then we went uh, up to Guam where we uh, re-equipped the boat uh, with supplies. Um, and then we moved down to a um, little, a small island group. I think it's a North Carolina group. Um, and we really uh, set up base camp, <laughs> if you like, on board the ship. Um, you know, in relatively calm waters where we could, um, you know, do that last minute preparations uh, on Deep Sea Challenger uh, in the shelter of a, you know, Coral Island lagoon. And... Yeah, then with weather breaks, we'd um, steam uh, 24 hours up to uh, the Maranas Trench, halfway between this island group and uh, Guam. So, yeah, having a, you know, a nice calm area to work from is quite important. Mm. And when you were, how, how long were you there over the top of the trench before the, fight, the actual real attempt happened? I mean... Did you, yeah. for a start, did you get to go down there in... in, uh, in, in... I, yeah, look, Jim, we did a, uh, we did the two dives, a non-man dive and then Jim's dive uh, to the Maranas Trench uh, to 11,000 metres. Then, um, I think it was actually 10,900 metres. Mm. Um, you know, a little bit of controversy as to where the deepest spot is, but um, nevertheless, it's, um, you know, to the... You know, to the bottom of the Maranas Trench. Um, but uh, I end up doing a dive uh, in this island group um, to 1,100 metres. And, yeah, piloting something that you've worked on for several years. And, yeah, it was, it was quite amazing. It was sort of one of the last dives of the expedition... Um, we had a lot of the systems all functional and working. Um, so I had one of the best dives of the entire expedition, albeit it wasn't 11,000 metres. But um, <laughs> tell me about it. So were you, were you actually testing it and you were testing out all the different systems? Or did you actually take a bit of time just to look out the window and <laughs> enjoy what you could see outside? Yeah, well, the reason why I really got to pilot is that um, um, when Jim does a project... Um, you know, you've got to get, you know, all the shots. Um, and what he wanted, you know, we had cameras on the sub, it could film itself. Um, we had cameras inside, um, outside, you know, we had cameras everywhere on that uh, thing, um, which we had to design, of course, and, and have built. Um, he wanted a few wider shots of a sub on the sea floor to put into the film go through the motions of uh, using the manipulator just to tell an audience that, you know, this is how the manipulator would work. Um, is this like the manipulator arm yeah, on the outside? Yeah. The one that had all the Rolex watches the, the on, on a, its wrist. Had a very expensive Rolex <laughs> on it. Um, but, yeah, you have to have those shots to tell the story, tell what the sub's capability was. Mm. And it didn't really matter that it wasn't at the bottom of the Maranas Trench but, you know, it had to show that, you know, it's capable of science, it was intent with science. Um, and I think Jim was curious about the ROVs on board the ship. So he said, well, you're not diving deeper than 2,000 metres because I want to film you on the bottom 
with the ROVs. <laughs> so Jim ended up in the uh, control shack on the ship driving these ROVs and still directing the show to me mm. um, while I was diving 1,100 metres in the uh, Deep Sea Challenger. Mm. But it was absolutely fantastic. Where I dived, there was a bit of a current. Uh, he wanted me to land next to the lander, which had been positioned, um, pre-positioned there beforehand. Um, you know, I was able to... He was directed us there. He told us exactly where to put the, sh the, the ship, and which I was able to do precisely. Um, then we went for a bit of a tour. We had no idea of the area, but we came across this, you know, 1,100 metres and this coral... Uh, so far down. Absolutely amazing yeah. uh, landscape. And, yeah, uh, it was the, one of the best dives of the entire expedition as far as, um, yeah, seeing something, working with the lander, which is a, a stationary vehicle that was just pre-positioned uh, on the seafloor. Um, Jim was able to get the shots with the ROV. Um, so he had the sub, the lander, uh, the ROV, yeah, all at the same time. So, mm. um, yeah, that, that was very exciting yeah, to be part of that. Yeah, good. And then when the actual final, the, the real dive um, right to the bottom came, how mm. long did it take to, to get to the bottom once it was in the water? Uh, I think Jim was, um, when he said, yeah, release, release, um, it was indicating to the divers to let the uh, flotation off. Uh, to keep it on the surface, um, he accelerated to about six knots, and he's on the bottom within ninety minutes. Mm, ninety um, minutes. Yeah, and he describes it like being in an express elevator to the bottom of the ocean. So it's a little <laughs> bit like a, a rocket, a space yeah. rocket in reverse, going down <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, really fast. Yeah. So he had maximum time down there, on the bottom of the yeah, ocean. Yeah, he had. Uh, on his dive, he did have a couple of malfunctions with the manipulator. Um, um, you know, teething systems with, um, you know, various parts, various components um, is inevitable because mm. it was such a short build time. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, these are things that we uh, worked on on board the ship and we resolved a lot of them. Mm. You know, as I said, my dive was very successful because yeah. <laughs> it was one of the last dives. Yeah. And so that was... Um uh, then and uh, these days you are I suppose really a, a leading light in submersible technology research tell us about uh, all of the learnings that you took from all of that uh, and what you're what you're working on these days Ron I suppose it was an ambition of mine that I put so much you know, time and effort uh, into deep sea challenger that you know many 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 unpaid hours that um I don't know, I think to throw it away at the end of the expedition would have been uh, a tremendous waste. So, mm. you know, I was able to negotiate with uh, James Cameron um, that, you know, I could take on the equipment here in Australia and set up some sort of deep-sea submergence facility. Um, and that was based on the fact that Australia has some of the deepest water around our continent uh, that has not been visited. Um and we thought there might be some sort of uh, opportunity. Yeah, opportunity, yeah. and uh, 
Unfortunately, it's been a very hard, difficult road. Uh, we've set up the equipment. We've now got our own premises uh, down in Tarrant Point uh, in Sydney. And we are slowly making uh, inroads. Um, we have revised a lot of the equipment you know, that we used. Our batteries have been fully revised. Our motors are fully revised. Um, and we now test each of our designs to you know, at least 20 cycles to full ocean depth, 200 hours endurance. So you know, you know, when we go back, and we are you know, going back with various vehicles that um, they're going to be a, a lot more uh, robust and reliable. Who wants to go to the bottom of the ocean? Who, who's, <laughs> who's queuing up to get yeah. down there? What kind of people? Uh, look, there's, you know, um, well, I can say that um, probably the world's deepest diving submersible at the moment is owned by the Chinese. Um, you know, it's Jaya Long, it's 7,500 metres, so there's certainly interest um, in other foreign countries, uh, you know, going deep. Um, you know, there's mineral resources. Um, you know, we don't want to see, you know, plummeting of the ocean floors or, or anything, mm. but, um, you know, there's some, you know, um, you know, I think there's a lot of exploration still uh, to be done. And I think it's really giving anyone the opportunity to um, you know, do that exploration and um, you know, research. And what, so, there's sort of almost two schools of thought, really, with yeah. ocean exploration. I suppose it's the same with space: is the manned versus the unmanned. Yeah. Um, what is it that makes us really? You know, I know that there's been a lot of um, uh, innovation in unmanned exploration wherever, but we still want to be there ourselves, don't we? You think some humans are just sort of driven to, to want to see these things with their own eyes. So, I mean, the, the technology that you're working on now, is, it, is, is that like, our, is it remote controlled or is it yeah. also technology to take human beings down to the deepest depths of the ocean? There is certainly an element to humans being inquisitive and wanting to be there. Um, on the other hand, um, in a, I suppose, a real world with occupational health and safety, a lot of people involved in the oceans don't want divers in the water mm. because it is unsafe, dangerous. Um, not that I necessarily think so, but um, there is this move more into autonomy for um, you know, scientists, um, workers, particularly oil and gas, where depths are getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So, um, yeah, I still think there is room for the human element, and I'll certainly be involved in another vehicle if the opportunity arose. So. <laughs> Well, look, I'm yeah. sure there will be uh, more opportunities for you with your amazing talent for um, invention and innovation and, and troubleshooting. Uh, and it's led you to a, a very adventurous life, but one in which you yourself have sort of uh, moved forward the boundaries almost of, 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 of physics and, uh, and allowed all of us, really, who who had a look at... Uh, James Cameron's uh, films to actually experience it, even rather vicariously, uh, to actually experience this whole realm, this whole unexplored area of, of, of the Earth that, um, that, that has, you know, so much potential. 
So thank you very much, Ron, Alan. It's just been lovely to speak to you. And, and, and thank you once again for sharing your amazing life story with us. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Ron Allen. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.